Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It's the weekend, Saturday, November 14th. And Mark and I were thinking a lot about the student loan crisis in the U.S. I know we are in this forbearance period where if you have a federal student loan, you don't have to pay any interest on it at 0% and you don't have to make a payment through the end of this year. But just in the midst of that forbearance period, which is you know just a break, a, a breathing room, we noticed an article by our friends over at the New York Times, Ron Lieber and Tara Siegel Bernard. And they wrote quite extensively about the uh, student loan debt crisis, but most importantly, that once you declare bankruptcy, it's actually very difficult to discharge student loan debt. Now, Mark's going to put a link to that article in our show notes, but we thought it would make a lot of sense to re-air an interview that we conducted with Caitlin Zaloom. This is the author of the book, Indebted, How Families Make Colleges Work at Any Cost. We're going to re-air this interview. I think you're going to find it really interesting just in light of everything going on. In this first part of our interview, we're going to talk about her background, Caitlin Zaloom's background. She's a professor at NYU. And also how essentially, if you are upper middle class, it's really hard to get college paid for easily. So here is the first part of our interview with Caitlin Zaloom. So let's do a little bit of your story. Uh, where'd you grow up? I grew up uh, in different suburbs around New York. My dad lived in northern New Jersey and my mom lived in Westchester and I commuted to the Bronx for school. You went to Fordham? Uh, no, no, high school. Oh, I went, okay. yeah. oh, so you went to Bronx Science or something? I went or to Horace you- Mann. Oh, wait. So this is good because you had an elite high school education. Yeah. What happens next? Where are, you, where are you going off to college and what are you studying and how do you become what you become today? That's a, a really um, not straight path. I good. Think. Well, I went from Horace Mann to Brown, which is a straight path. What did you study at Brown? I studied um, a combination of things. I studied uh, Middle Eastern studies, which was uh, an interest that I had uh, based on my father's family. And I also studied something called modern culture and media, which is really... Made up. What is that? Is that like semiotics? What is that? A semiotics would have been um, among the things that I studied there. Mm-hmm. But I also studied, yeah, all kinds of social theory that had to do with what happened um, in the United States and the world uh, kind of after the 1960s. Flash forward to where you are this minute when you are thinking about education, the impact on families, 
and specifically middle-class families. Mm -hmm. What led you to this Mm -hmm. as a topic to Mm -hmm. to write an entire book about it? Mm -hmm. So as you know, I'm an economic anthropologist and I had been studying- Can you define that? Okay, so so everyone, let's let's take a moment. Mm -hmm. This is an economic anthropologist. What does that mean? Yeah, so I study how culture shapes the economy and how the economy shapes culture, that that relationship between those two things. So it was kind of a natural for me to try to understand the relationship between family and these big social and economic changes that we experience. And for middle-class families, there's no bigger change than the cost of going to college and the significance of going to college in their lives as parents and students both. So in this book, one of the sort of the main thesis is that there is an inherent conflict that is really being embodied and acted out in almost all middle-class families. So can you describe that conflict for the listeners? Yes. So on the one hand, families are being told from very early on in their children's lives, uh, basically from the time any child is born, that they should be doing everything that they can to save for college, that the only responsible thing to do as both parents and as kind of citizens of our economy is to start putting away money for college. At the same time, parents are being told that, in fact, they have to spend. They have to spend in order to get their kids into a good school district. So they have to pay as much rent as they can. They have to buy as much house as they can in the best school district as they can. And all the activities that are going to make you into a well-rounded, you know, resume-built student who's going to apply to the best school you can get into, all of that. Those things are expensive. Absolutely, they're expensive. And so, and and even that, what you're mentioning, has a dual character to it. So on the one hand, um, it is for resume building. On the other hand, it's because parents actually want their kid to be well-rounded people, to participate in the full range of possibilities of their lives, including things like sports and arts. I don't feel like in my time as a late 80s graduate of college that this conflict was being, I don't know, I I mean, it was probably always there, but it feels like it's just gotten worse and worse. And in the book, you say that it's the early 80s where this idea of like, you shouldn't rely on anyone else and that this is going to be important. That the pre-80s, it was like the government's going to help you out. And then post-1980, we're talking about you're on your own. Mm -hmm. And that shift is somewhat political, but it has now turned into families. How, mm-hmm. where do you see the escalation of that conflict really beginning? And, and when does it get a little bit, maybe does it seem to get away from us a bit? I think you're right that it starts kind of in the, in the 1980s and then really, really ramps up in the 1990s. So it's not only that it starts under the Reagan administration, but it also continues through the Clintons and until today. So it's it's a bit of a bipartisan consensus, I mm. suppose. The issue is really that in the, the 1980s and 1990s, there was a real shift in the way that politicians, policy experts, and others began to think about what 
college meant. So in that time period, there was a very strong movement to reframe college as an asset, mm. a private good that students would benefit from in terms of their income. And because college meant elevated income later on, those policy experts and politicians began to think of paying for college also as a private matter, something that should be borne by the students and their families privately. And this is when the expansion of the loan system really began. This paragraph really resonated with me. You said that there are tensions between the sacred responsibilities that parents feel towards their children and the cultural expectations of fiscal prudence that financial advisors, lenders, and policymakers prescribe. And I felt a little bit as I was reading this book, so I'm a former investment advisor, certified financial planner, and it's not that I used to say, oh, you should save money for college at any cost, because I always felt like parents should come first, but I always struggled because parents would actually not feel comfortable with the advice that I was offering. And that's really what my takeaway was, being in the business of giving advice, is that you, when you say, Kate, you know what? I get that you want to save for college. You can't. And that you know they're walking out of their that office and they're like, I have to. Mm-hmm. What is that have to? Mm-hmm. What is, why mm-hmm. do they feel like they have to? Mm-hmm. So parents feel like they have to save for college because it is going to be so expensive. And they also don't even know how expensive it is going to be. And this is one of the very strange things about the about the system that we have set up right now. So we have uh, colleges and universities that will cost them at minimum, you know, on average, $25,000. That's, that's a, that would be an average cost of attendance for a public university per year. Yeah. Okay. And I think that it's important when we throw out that number, also to remind ourselves that the median income in this country is like $63,000 a year. Right. The middle class, as you define it, is not, you know, the Pew Research quintile thing. You're basically saying if you make more than 50 grand, you don't qualify for a lot of the grants that are out there, right? That's right, yeah. I was wondering what you think is the upper end of that band, because I think that people are often surprised when they are going through the college experience and they'll say, you know, I live in New York or I live in a burb and I live in California or I live in Ohio and I make good money. I make $200,000 a year. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of money, maybe mm-hmm. more in Ohio than on the coast, yes, right? Absolutely. But if you make $200,000 a year as a married couple, can you explain what kind of aid, financial aid, you might be able to get as mm-hmm. that family, a family mm-hmm. of four, let's make it mm-hmm. up. What does that look like for mm-hmm. most people? So there is that possibility for a high-earning family to get aid, but we might want to ask what that aid does within any college or university's ability to support students who might really need it. I guess I would also point out that if you're making $200,000, you might actually just be able to pay cash. Um, you might, and you might and you might have started a 529 because you had somewhat more than you needed in a day-to-day way and that that's not necessarily the condition of of most people. But of course, yes, $200,000 in New York, 
in San Francisco and other uh, high rent and just high cost places certainly does not go as far as it would in the suburbs of Detroit, which is where you'd likely be if you were sending your kid to Western Michigan. One thing that I think is really interesting is is the question of where people get that money to pay in the first place. So even families that don't make $200,000 have to face some cost that they have to bear. And then they kind of shift into gear um, trying to make that work, trying to pay that cost more or less no matter what. And yet you also point out that, and I guess this is back to your anthropological background, that parents feel this need to create independent kids. Yes. And the process itself is making them dependent. Right. So that's so wacky. Right. Yes, that's incredibly... Strange, Because college is supposed to do exactly that. It is supposed to give young adults the ability to to go off into the world and to make the most of their talents and to live their own lives separate from what their parents have given them up to the point where they where they leave home. What also really did resonate with me because I feel like I feel like I want to confess to you that I was one of those people. I am one of those people who really does try to say to people not so much save for college, but like, please take care of yourself. And I think that until I read your book that I would kind of walk away from having a a call with a a listener and say, "Ah, they're not going to be able to do it and like almost judge it. This is because I have four-legged children, not two-legged children, I I suppose. (laughs) But the conversations that are happening are far more thoughtful, I think, than most people give the the masses credit for. And so when you hear the debates about, okay, we're going to wipe out student loan debt, and then, you know, you hear someone go in a box on cable TV say, like, why should I have paid back my debt? These people are deadbeats. They never shouldn't take out the debt for. That's not what's happening. And you... Interviewed how many people for this? 80 parents, 80 students. Most people? What was the experience? I mean, most people are incredibly thoughtful about sending their kid to college. And families know very well uh, what the toll is going to be um, on their household finances. I mean, parents know that the money that they're going to spend on their kid is money that they won't have later to secure their retirement. You know, I do feel like there is a tendency to kind of lecture people about that, but they understand it. And and so it's a decision to make that they choose to support their kids before they before they make sure that their retirements are in place. One time a flight attendant told me, I always said, oh, I always use the analogy of the flight attendant, put the mask on yourself before you put it on your kid. She goes, guess what? The plane's going down, they're putting on the kid first. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know why we're so surprised about this. Also, if, if parents actually chose to put their mask on first, we wouldn't need to tell them this over and over and over again. I know. It would just be common sense, but it's not. So I think that uh, from my perspective, what we need to be focusing on is the conflict that most people live in, which is that they really feel an obligation to save and to be good kind of financially responsible 
people. They, they understand that, but they're in situations where their incomes don't live up to the commitments that they have to their kids. All right. So tomorrow we're going to air part two. If this interview starts to jog some questions out of the recesses of your brain, do not hesitate to send us an email. Our address is askjill at jillonmoney.com. Askjill at jillonmoney.com. And of course, if you're on our website, you will find all sorts of great stuff there, including our free weekly newsletter. You should definitely get that. Okay. All right. Don't forget, wash your hands, wear your masks, maintain that physical distancing. Stay outside as much as you can. Okay. That's really the main message. Put your hands metaphorically on someone's back and do something nice for somebody. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow. 